Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking about the fundamental challenges the commodity markets face and the funding gap that result. What are the challenges? What does it mean for pricing risk in the markets? And what is the role of investment banks as we go through a period of high risk, high volatility, and increasing need for risk management services? Our guest is Nick O'Kane. Nick is the head of commodities and global market at Macquarie Group. Now based in Sydney, Nick has spent over 25 years with a bank and has been instrumental in growing their commodities offering and subsequently leading it over the last 20 years. We're delighted to have Nick on to celebrate our 100th episode of the HC Insider podcast. As always, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a positive review, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Nick, thanks for joining. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's hard to believe it's been a few years since we last talked. You really launched the, the HC Insider in conversation with for us, so excited to have you on for what was going to be our, our 100th episode. So um, thanks for doing it. Yeah, no, look, really happy, happy to be here and, and uh, congratulations on the success of the series so far. Thank you. Right, so we are talking about the, the funding gap in commodities, the role of investment banks more broadly within that, and of course, the what is going on today in the commodities world and this sort of new normal of high volatility, high prices, high risk, etc. Before we sort of dig into some of the the solutions and the challenges the sector faces from a funding standpoint, can you just diagnose for us what you think the fundamental challenges, if they are indeed challenges, the commodity sectors face today? Well, I, I think um, some of the challenges that that the sector is facing are not that different from from the challenges we, we've faced in the past, given the cyclical nature of, of this sector that that we operate in. Um, things may be, uh, uh, you know, some slight uh, nuances that are very specific to, to the conditions that we, we see today. But overall, the cycle that we're going through is not that different from the cycle that we've, we've seen previously. Over, over the long term, commodity prices tend to move with levels of growth in, in GDP. And that's not that dissimilar to what we've seen driving a lot of the increases in prices over the last couple of years. Although we do have, a couple of new challenge, I guess, in terms of geopolitical instability, um, something that we haven't really faced in, in a significant way for, for quite a, a few years. And, and we've had a little bit of underinvestment in, in fossil fuels over the last couple of years as well, which has resulted in some um, supply constraints globally, which have been um, impacted by the growth in industrial production over the last couple of years, which has meant demand for, for energy has increased when perhaps there's been somewhat of a underinvestment in supply. And then there is um, the energy transition, which we're working through at the moment, which is changing the landscape for some, for some metals consumption and also changing the way we are looking at producing energy both now and, and into the future. But overall, if you, if you take a step back and think about what drives overall commodity prices. So it's the level of, of uh, actual economic growth that drives it more often than not. And then we always have some 
idiosyncrasies that might be driving one part of a particular cycle or, or, or another. Yeah. When you compare, and there is obviously a lot of talk about a super cycle. The last one that was diagnosed was, you know, the, the 2000s, primarily related to China's growth and demand for commodities. Do you see this as a, a, a true swing up in that cycle, or could it just be a temporary rebound from lockdowns and COVID? Uh, look, I think you, you need to take a view on where you think long-term global growth is going. Uh, and, and if you're thinking that we're going to see sustained global growth over a long period of time, then you'll see sustained growth in commodity prices. So not, notwithstanding that backdrop, uh, I, I suspect, you know, depending on what your, what your view is there, and we are seeing governments and uh, central banks at the moment react to inflation that, that's crept its way into, into global economy. So we're, we're seeing interest rates rise uh, quite quite rapidly, and that, and that will probably have an impact on global growth. So therefore, you can extrapolate what you think might happen to commodity prices from that perspective, with the nuance of a couple of things that are happening in the in the short term, which is around energy supply related to things that are happening happening in Europe and and, and potential uh, impacts of demand coming out of China as well. So I think there will be those idiosyncratic issues that are, that are that are happening in various places throughout the sector. But overall, if I, I think about a, a super cycle, I think I'd be more inclined to to align that with what global growth will, will look like over coming years. Yeah, interesting. But then uh, there are these sort of the idiosyncrasies of this particular time compared to previous events, which is it's happening in a in a deglobalizing world, arguably, or at least there is pressures on free trade, particularly around energy. Um, and you're also dealing with extreme levels of volatility that we've seen in the metals markets and then the energy markets again. So can you just talk to those two points, especially, I guess, starting off on how the geopolitical landscape is, it might exacerbate the ability of commodity traders or the markets to, to level prices and, and, and move and transform those commodities in space and time? Well, I think when, when you've seen this period of, of um, uh, underinvestment that we, we've just gone through for, for a couple of reasons, whether that's been you know, a period of, of, of low returns for, for investment in fossil fuels um, prior to, to the most recent rallies, or whether it was related to other pressures in terms of changing demands from stakeholders of, of uh, organisations that, that lend money, so things like ESG and various other things. We did see that period of, of, of underinvestment, and that's meant we've had a really tight market from a supply and demand perspective. And when you have a, have a tight market, even the smallest changes can particularly have an impact in terms of price. And that's why we're seeing the levels of volatility that we've seen. And then on top of that, you start to see um, something like the conflict that we're seeing in Ukraine, which had an extremely significant personal impact and, and a devastating one to, to, to many people. It's also added this new dimension in terms of supply uncertainty as to what is happening with, with, with supply coming from things like the, the global oil market or, or, or uh, natural gas market in Europe. Uh, that impact that has then on electricity prices, but also some of the other agricultural commodities as well. And, and there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty that's coming from this conflict and, and, and what will ultimately be the outcome and, and what's the impact on, on economies and, and ultimately what's, what's the impact on, on humans and, and society. So 
it, 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 we started at a relatively precarious position and then we've had some significant shocks and those shocks have meant uh, substantial volatility as um, participants in the market try and understand what the implications are, not only in the short term, but what are the implications in the long term for these, these macro shifts in terms of where uh, things like energy are going to be produced and how we get it to where it is being consumed. Yeah, which I guess comes back to this this narrative that's out there about typically, you know, investment capital flow into commodities when there's a rise in prices. And there's to some extent, that investment hasn't really come to fruition over the last two years or so, as you pointed to. Some of that is ESG, an energy transition, and some of that is also uncertainty about where to invest now exacerbated by geopolitical conditions. Can you just talk to us a little bit about, you know, as Macquarie being very much a bank focused on energy and commodities itself globally, where, where is that? Um, how is the, the twin issue, what the twin challenges of investing with an eye on uh, sustainability and also now this, this high level of volatility, how is that impacting investment flows to commodities? And indeed, what solutions can you offer to encourage it? Well, as you know, from, from Macquarie's perspective, we've been a long-term investor in renewable energy and, and one of the world's largest investors in, in wind and, and solar and something that we've been doing for, for 20, 20 odd years. But we've, we've also had significant um, levels of participation in other parts of the, the commodity spectrum as well. And, and look, when we, when we're looking to, uh, participate and invest in, in these opportunities, we're looking at the, um, we're looking at the similar types of things that we've always looked at in terms of what is the society, what, what's the benefit to society of building the production that's getting, that's getting built? What issues are, are we solving from a supply and demand perspective? And, and how does it ultimately contribute to, overall energy stability and that and that sort of continues and that and that's the way we'll, we'll always look to assess the types of um, activity that that we're involved in and of course whenever we're looking to to make an investment what we like to understand is, is how much of the commodity exposure can be hedged uh, and how much of that commodity exposure needs to be hedged to be able to ensure that the debt can be repaid and that's a, a you know a really significant role that the financial markets can can play in in terms of commodity space, in, in being able to to give investors and, and equity uh, decision makers confidence that um, they can get a return on their investment by giving them some certainty and confidence over their future future cash flows, uh, and that, and that's a really important role that the derivatives um, markets play in, in ensuring that the right amount of investment takes place at the right time to solve some of these issues. Yeah. And so, so staying with that, that risk management, for the last eight years you've had, or at least sort of the mid-2010s, it was a period of extreme, well, of, of low, low volatility and also low returns. And, and that meant, uh, from just conversations I've had on this podcast, you know, you had corporates out there that have perhaps let go of some of their more 
or their their focus on risk management that they had in the 2000s when they did see their feedstock prices go up. And also it meant that there were fewer organizations out there who have that kind of capability to manage those risks, be it independent merchants or be it commodity trading arms of investment banks. Can you just talk to that, you know, because suddenly now in this period of high volatility, I can imagine that's something that's in great demand, but it's really quite challenging when you're facing the markets like we are. Yeah, it's it's been it's been interesting. And I think through throughout that period, especially towards the latter part of that that period, attracting uh, young people to come into into the industry was was more difficult than it was perhaps, you know, the early 2000s to mid 2000s, where it was considered to be quite an attractive industry for, for young people to to join and and I think we were competing with uh, tech companies and and various other potential employers for the brightest the brightest talent. So as a result, I think there had been a little bit of an underinvestment in terms of the amount of talent that was being developed across across the industry, given that it was probably more exciting things to to do elsewhere. However, with with a sort of a, an evolution of approach in the way that the market looks at uh, assessing risk and and indeed trading and, and the continued importance of data and, and, and mining of data and, and understanding how to, to use big data. I think we're starting to be able to attract those, the best and brightest minds back to working, working in the industry. And that, that's good for, for everyone because ultimately it ends up, we, we end up with better solutions. And whether that be for, for our corporates or utilities that we're helping manage risk for, or whether that be in terms of just overall efficiency of, of the, the way that the markets are operating. So I've been um, really pleasantly surprised by um, the quality of interns and, and graduates that have been entering the industry over, over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, though, there are still far fewer seats out there at the moment because there was a big contraction in the number of participants as a result of regulation and an opportunity that it's going to take quite some time to build up that that stock of individuals who have commodities expertise like we had back in the, the mid-2000s, right? So I still think there is, you know, sitting on my seat, there's still a real challenge the industry is going to face if indeed more in entrants, new entrants come into the space and existing participants start to grow their deaths as the opportunity increases. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. That will take some some time to replace, but but will we will we need the the same level of of uh, of seats that we had previously as as technology has evolved and and we as businesses are, are more efficient than than we perhaps were, you know, twenty years ago. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true, right? Whereas a a natural gas test would have many many people on it. Now today, it's it's much smaller as a result of, as you say, automation and technologies available. Um, but coming back to risk, do you think? Because again, for a long time, there's an argument out there that essentially commodity risk has been underpriced. Do you think we're in a period of a, a you know essentially a big risk repricing going on in commodities, given the events of the last six months to a year across whether it's gas, metals? Oil, ags, etc. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question, um, and it's one that we spend quite a bit of time reflecting on. And, and obviously, we get real time information um, from our interactions with with the marketplace on that question itself. And look, the reality is that after you get a period 
of extraordinary volatility like the one that we've just had, you will get an adjustment in, in pricing. And th there's a couple of different ways it might manifest itself. So we, we've got the adjustment in terms of the actual level of, of volatility that might reflect in the way that we price market risk, but it also has to reflect the way that we price credit risk as well. And then I think a lot of participants are, are assessing the way they price other non-financial risks as well. So what, what we are seeing in, in the very short term is uh, a reaction to, to the market level, uh, the, the activity levels that we have seen or the volatility levels that we have seen. Now, how long that remains for is, is unknown. I do think um, risk management products will, will be getting more expensive as these levels of volatility start to feed through to, to all of the various participants' pricing models. And in some cases, we've seen that come through already. In other cases, then we'll, we'll see that feed through over time. But historically, what that has meant is um, once we've seen a bit of a repricing for commodity risk management products, other participants who, who have not necessarily been involved in the market see the, see the attractive yields, then they'll come in and start offering similar competing products and, and then prices tend to retract a little bit. So that's a, that's sort of a, a, a normal cycle that, that sort of pricing of risk takes across the commodity markets. Having said that, some of the, the moves have been so significant and some of the, ch the challenges and changes may, may be structural given some of the topics that we've already talked about earlier, I suspect we will see long-term impacts of, of pricing, repricing of risk, but I'm, I'm not sure uh, how significant they will be. When we last had a commodity supercycle, much of the risk management was done OTC, right? Since the global financial crisis, much of the, the derivative world has moved on to exchanges, and those exchanges have become ever more granular in the products that are available on them. Does that, do you think, does that make it easier for participants and also corporates looking to come in and hedge to, to get those services? I mean, how has that changed, if anything, that risk management landscape? Look, uh, it, it, it comes down to your access to funding. And I think what we've seen most recently is that accessing exchanges is, prior to cost of funding, a cheap way to access risk management product, although it's obviously on an exchange so that there isn't the flexibility to, to make it into a bespoke product that might better reflect your, your actual exposure. So you have that playoff between something that's vanilla and uniform versus something that can be, that can be actually tailored specifically to, to your exposure. However, for that, um, for that trade-off, it, it, it is cheaper. But what we did see over the course of the last 12 months or so is, it can require a really significant amount of funding. And that's why the OTC markets developed in the way that, that they did, is that for certain customers that don't necessarily have the access to funding or, or yeah, that the, the ability to call on funding lines quickly, they're better off putting on an OTC product and have that OTC product match their cash flows so that the treasuries of, of those companies can, can better manage their own liquidity and not have to draw on funding for margin calls that don't actually reflect their underlying business or their underlying business activities. So I, we are still seeing a healthy demand for OTC product for, for those reasons. Um, and particularly after the, the challenges of the last 12 months where people found themselves 
with margin calls both from initial margin increases from the exchange, but also extreme movements, commodity markets calling for, for bigger variation margin calls found themselves challenged to find the funding to, to make those margin calls. Yeah, and I want to come back to that funding point because it is, it's really the key issue of the day. But just on, on, on talking about those OTC bespoke products, once again, I mean, you've had a period of 10 years when you've had these low prices and low volatility and lots of those more sophisticated purchasing departments of, you know, whether it's the airlines or whomever, whomever it may be, who are significantly impacted by unexpected rises in commodity prices. Do they still have the, well, a better way of asking this would be, do you find yourself having to do a lot more as a bank outreach and communication and education of those clients, given that many of those historic, that much of that historical knowledge might have moved on when OTC products just weren't needed anymore? I, look, I think from our, our approach in terms of working with clients has always been to, to partner with them. We, we've, we've always thought about how we can um, work with them to give them the most efficient risk management product available. Uh, and 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 we we have you know from Macquarie's perspective we have a futures offering as well as an OTC offering, so we feel like we can we can provide that, and then we work with the client themselves to to work through what is their particular what is their particular circumstances and what 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 level of investment do they have to to your point in terms of managing these risks themselves and 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 how much of that do they want to outsource to third parties. So I, I don't know that that has particularly, those types of conversations have particularly changed due to sort of changing staffing levels or, or, or things of that nature. I, I think they just continue to evolve and and grow with, with the clients. And, 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 you know, we do see some clients having their commodity exposures grow over time and and their, their level of sophistication and maturity in terms of managing those products and those risks grow as well. And, and again, sort of just normal course of business, I think, for, um, for people in this market. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. So I guess coming back to the, the funding piece, there's two distinct channels here. One is what you're talking about is you know, in, in an environment of high initial margin requirements and growing margin margining calls during the trade, ultimately it's about liquidity and speed of access to that liquidity. The other, the other challenge is more systemic, which is how do you get investment capital to flow into the energy and commodities world when it's in this period of profound transition? And how do you get markets comfortable with the risks and also the, the sustainability challenge? But staying on that first one, liquidity and commodities, is this how profound is, or how significant an issue is this? And what are your comments on how people are going to, because there's obviously been recent calls by a number of merchants in Europe reaching out to the central bank to have get support on this. Obviously, there were a lot of you know, significant exogenous 
impacts that are causing these outs this outsized volatility but can you just talk to a minute about liquidity your take on that and and how the market can bear it uh, i think it's a it, it's a, a good question and 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 um one that uh, market participants had to deal with in a in a really acute way earlier earlier this year when we we started to see really significant changes in in commodity prices particularly in europe across uh, across a number of different commodities and not just in in the energy space and that meant just the overall requirement from a capital perspective to operate in the markets increased significantly and and the market was able to bear it and there were large margin calls that were taking place on a, on a daily basis and they, they were made or, or there were arrangements put in place to, to finance them. And I, and I think since then, there's been quite a lot of activity where participants in the market have gone and raised additional capital and additional funding to continue to shore up their balance sheets in the event that we start to see you know, significant volatility like this throughout the rest of the markets. So from that from that perspective, um, I, I think we we have seen some some a really good response from from the industry in terms of trying to recognise that that things uh, well things well commodity prices can can move more than than we expect and and when those things happen and those market gyrations take place, you, you need funding to be able to to stay liquid throughout those um, periods of time. So um, I have seen a lot of activity. Uh, over the course of the last few months where various participants in the market are, are shoring up their funding positions. Yeah, I think so. So the, <clears throat> we're definitely seeing that. But then there's still this more sort of structural issue of how do we get the investment capital required to navigate what is a transition? And it's, it's incredibly challenging, right? I think there's a, it was, it, it, we all understand where we're likely to end up in terms of electrification and renewables and so forth. But exactly which path that takes and how long it takes is very uncertain. And in the interim, we obviously need to continue to have the hydrocarbons available so that we don't see catastrophic impacts you know, on a global basis as you know, in terms of food prices, in terms of yeah, energy prices, right. etc. How... I guess you know. I'm just interested in your take on how do you sort of navigate that, right? How do you, how do organisations, how can companies get investment to continue to produce vital hydrocarbons or whatever it might be, whilst also you know giving us a route towards energy transition? Yeah, I think that's um, that's a that's a challenge that that the whole world's grappling with it at the moment, but. The, the reality is, you pointed out very, very accurately and clearly, I think we, we agree with you that, that this is a transition to maintain su uh, sustainable economic um, stability over, over time. We, we do need to tr transition, transition and not just switch. So then the question becomes, okay, well, how do you finance that and how do you fund that? And the reality is, um, back to your point earlier, it's a repricing of the risk that we're asking people to take. Um, so we're, we're, we're asking people to continue to invest in, in some parts of the fossil fuel chain so that we have stability in terms of energy supply, both as we, as we transition, but also as the world's movement of molecules changes due to what, what's, what's basically, you know, taking place at, at this point in time. And, and people look to shore up their, their supply of, of, of energy and, 
and their security of, of, of energy supply. And there's only one real way that that can get done, and, and, and that is through changing in price. There is an argument out there that one you sort of end up with having this sort of dual system where those organizations involved in the energy and commodity supply chain that have are embracing the energy transition and whatever it might be are supported by public companies and you're seeing that in cheaper financing for for those organizations that have the the correct ESG scores on the other hand those organizations that are investing in fossil fuels etc are more and more likely to go private to avoid some of those stakeholder concerns. Is that something that you're seeing? And I'd love to get your take on how, whether you feel carbon, a price for carbon is sort of cuts the Gordian knot in, in stopping that bifurcation. Sure. Look, we, we are seeing an increasing role in, in the private sector for funding some of these projects. That is okay, and that, that sort of goes back to your comments on, on price. Um, what, what we feel is important is that, as I've mentioned, this is a transition area. There are needs for more than one source of energy supply to be developed, and what we're interested in is responsible ownership. So we, we want to make sure that there is an appropriate level of um, responsibility applied to the production of these types of assets and indeed then also understanding the remediation of these these assets once the useful life is, has been um, achieved. So that I think is a, is a really important uh, responsibility that um, financial institutions have to, to ensure that any funding of these types of activities doesn't just fall to, a, to an unregulated private sector that, that doesn't have the same level of potential oversight from, from community stakeholders and, and, and um, various other important forces that, that result in appropriate sustainable solutions being, being reached mm. and decisions being made. Mm. And, and do you see, and, and that's very fair comments, right? And I think it um, points to a whole slew of, you know, supporting whether it's regulation, but it's certainly how other actors in the supply chain operate and how they choose their suppliers and so forth. But do you see a role, do you think the world will get to a global price for carbon, whether that's markets or a tax? Where do you, can you talk to us a little bit about your view for where carbon is going? Obviously, at the moment, lots of organisations in the commodities world are putting together desks and investing in it. Lots of large public companies are buying lots of voluntary credits and so forth. So can you just get, I'd love to get your take on that. Yeah, look, you know, ourselves included have, have um, increased our efforts in, in, in the, the carbon markets globally. And, and indeed, we, we've taken what was a historically a regional approach and um, we've, we've coordinated that with a more, a more global approach over the last, um, over the last 12 months or so. And I, I, I don't think we are alone in that effort. And we are seeing increased um, level of, of activity in, in those areas, like a really significant increase in, in activity. And, and, and some people think that this is going to be one of the, you know, carbon will be one of the most highly traded commodities going forward. Uh, and I'm not quite sure that, that we're at that point yet, but um, we certainly see a role for the pricing of carbon. We have responded accordingly. And whether that be in the voluntary markets or the compulsory markets, we're just seeing those levels of investment 
increased significantly and and we're responding uh, in that way as well and uh, there, there are it's very rare for us not to have a relationship with a commodity counterparty that doesn't involve some kind of discussion around carbon so it's it's uh, a really critical part of what we what we think of how we think the markets will will evolve over time and and it's just going to be another one of these um variable costs that our counterparties and our clients are going to need to manage and our goal is to to be able to help them manage that that variable nature of that price and 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 help them give them a bit more stability over over their cash flows going forward whether that ultimately is a a global carbon price is, is yet to be yet to be seen there are a lot of challenges involved with that from a you know jurisdictional perspective and a lot of things that would need to be worked through but certainly over time you need to price these things to to get the correct decisions to the, to be made to get the right balance of of supply yeah okay so i know i know you you obviously don't want to talk about other investment banks but um maybe i can sort of in my own words frame a narrative over the last last decade which has been essentially before the financial crisis most investment banks, or at least you know, in Europe and in the US, had commodity trading platforms. As we stand today, many of those organizations have either shrunk or exited commodity trading altogether. Macquarie has essentially grown steadily throughout the last 20 years to its position today, and I'll let you describe where you think that position is. But one of the, if the probably the, I dare say it, the only investment bank to have grown consistently throughout that period. I really, I, I'd love to get your take on 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 that, and I'd love to get your take as well on whether, as we enter a new period where volatility is returning and probably returning for a reasonably long period, and maybe at a much greater level than historically, given those other complicating factors coming into this super cycle. You know, it's no longer just a a, a China demand story; it's very much a complicated global picture exacerbated by free trade, etc. I'd love to get you. And this is a very long question, but I'd love to get your take on uh, on the role of of you know, investment banks in in managing that commodity risk. Things that they can do that perhaps other organisations would struggle to do when, it, when you think about balance sheets, etc. But I'd love to get your take on first of all, kind of Macquarie's journey within that, and then more broadly, what you think the role is of investment banks going forwards in it in the commodity supercycle. Yeah, sure. So look. From Macquarie's perspective, we've been committed to uh, commodity markets for over forty years. First, first off, starting back, you know, when we were we were involved in the precious metals markets, and and then the base metals markets, and then I guess about twenty years ago when we we started doing a little bit more in in the energy markets. And from our perspective, it's been been a you know a really deliberate, gradual evolution of our uh, participation in in the markets and and we've grown purposefully into adjacent spaces as as the opportunities have presented themselves and generally the way we we, we think about it is we try and understand where the where the clients are and what the clients need from us and then we try and develop some products around around that so that we can help be part of the solution to to whatever the challenges are that they might be having and that that could be challenges in terms of looking for capital to deploy whether that be working capital for, to help them manage their their business efficiently or whether it's capital for for some kind of level of production of something or or, or something of that nature and of course you know we have our risk management business where we 
We provide uh, hedging tools, which we've talked um, quite a bit about over the course of this journey today, that, that provide the really, really important function of giving either uh, corporates with exposure or, or, or potential investors that, that, that want to provide equity to a project some kind of certainty around cash flows going forward that have exposure to commodities markets. And we, we have our um, exchange traded offering too, where we have a futures business where we act as um, agent uh, rather than rather than principal. And of course, we have in some markets our physical execution and logistics business. And that, that business is is designed to help clients get things from from where they're produced to, to where they're consumed as efficiently as, as they can. And, and, and as I mentioned, this is something that we've been, we've been doing for 40 odd years and in the energy markets for, for the last 20. And it's been, you know, very deliberate in terms of the way that we've, we've grown and, um, we're, we've been really consistent and being really consistent for, for your clients and, and for your staff is, is really important. So, we want people to, to know that um, regardless of, of conditions, and there have been quite a few cycles over those 40 years, that, that we're here to provide the products and, and level of service that, that we have th- throughout the journey. And our intention is to, to continue to do that over time. So, so that's, that's sort of what, what we've been up to. But if I, if I think sort of more broadly across, across the industry and what, what, what's the role of banks going, going forward I think there's probably uh, you can probably ask some of the other banks what they think their their role might be, but but I, I can um, I can kind of think that you know to to the extent that we're we're, we're headed into a period of sustained volatil- volatility, given given we've just had a increase in, in volatility, so maybe maybe it stays around for a little while. To the extent that traditionally uh, we can provide risk management product to help help our customers work their way through that, I think that's a really important role. For, for the industry and for, for the greater economy. But also there's this, this access to funding and, and efficient access to funding and then developing um, tools, risk management tools and products alongside our clients that, that help them get access to that funding in, a, in an efficient way from, from our client's balance sheet perspective. And I suspect that's a role or that, that type of product and service will be in high demand here for, for a little while. Um, particularly as we, 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 we face the challenges as it relates to, to the transition. We, we face the, the challenges that, that come from people looking for new supplies of, of energy from, from different parts of, different parts of the world than they'd previously finding that, that supply. So all of these things create levels of uncertainty. Um, when you have uncertainty, you want to look at ways you can manage that risk. Uh, and it also creates a lot of opportunity for, for new investment and that new investment requires funding and those are the types of things which which we think we can help our client base with mm. it's interesting isn't it because obviously the, the the most dominant players in the 2010s have been the independent trading houses you know who have mm-hmm. i guess benefited from being able to leverage their equity and, and scale but very much you know in a period of relative geopolitical stability and relative low volatility and it's it's interesting there as perhaps this next decade will 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 um yeah is going to lean more on the fundamental competitive edges of of the investment banks and in general compared to compared to previously so the, what final question 
there's you've got sort of from a global perspective you've got obviously there's kind of this deglobalization comment out there and we're starting to see that increasing great power rivalry mm -hmm. you're also moving from this sort of just in time to just in case economy in the wake of covid and you mentioned it there yourself you know not only is energy transition going to mean that different products are going to have to come from different regions, you know, we think about lithium, etc. But also, you've got a re reshaping of the global energy map and global commodity map in the wake of that sort of geopolitical destabilization. How crucial do you think it is to be global? And how can you even, you know, globally speaking, navigate these, these new risks as they arise? Yeah, uh, I, I think... Um... I think that's a, a question we're all uh, asking ourselves and starting to to work through. And and um, what does it mean to be global uh, and and truly global in the world that we're facing now and the world we're we're going through and and and, and so the world we're, we're facing in the future. And and I think that's something that we will we'll work through as as uh, in the fullness of time. What what it does say is that we just need to continue to be agile and responsive and be able to to move quickly when opportunities present themselves because I think if we've learned anything over the last year or so is that things change and they change very quickly and people who are flexible and um, people who are able to to respond with agility and provide service will be the the ones that are able to be be successful in terms of managing their risk but also in in terms of being able to provide both um, you know their, their clients and their own their own companies with with the appropriate level of of risk management so so what it means to be you know truly global going going forward I think depends on the type of company you are and the, and the jurisdiction that, that you operate in but but with with the things things like uh, growing Growing sanctions and, and 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 other challenges probably mean uh, what it, what it was like to be global, uh, truly global, five years ago, and what it might be in in five years' time are probably two different things. Yeah, it's going to be a a fascinating ride. I just want to go back to before we finish up because I do think it's a it's obviously a subject close to both of our hearts. But this, how does the commodity sector? How do you attract the best and the brightest as it was twenty years ago? to the industry because ultimately and i guess i don't want to don't want to put words in your mouth but i feel very much like if you want to make a difference in in sustainability in the energy transition then this is the place to be right exactly yeah i mean we we're, we're at the, the forefront of these conversations um we're, we're the we're, we're the people who are having um the discussions with, with with people that have the biggest challenges in this area uh, and very often Talking with people who have the largest carbon footprints and and who are trying the hardest to uh, decarbonize and to move in in different directions. So you have you know within this industry you've got an excellent opportunity to to make that difference. And and I think I think the graduates of today understand that. Um, and certainly when we when we talk to our graduates and our interns about possibilities for for their career prospects. At a place like Macquarie, these are the things that we're talking about, and, and, and we're talking about the difference that you that you can make, and uh, have a have a really significant positive impact on on uh, on the economy and, and and the world more more broadly. So there's certainly that that element to it. But you also need to provide 
an environment where you can learn and, and provide an environment where people have the freedom to develop things from a technical perspective or a technology perspective that they might they might not have previously had in in a, in a role like this. So there's a, there's a lot of elements to it in terms of the way we, we look to attract new entrants into into the business. Yeah, it's definitely a challenging world for for leaders of organisations in the commodity sector and and the people as well. So, but uh, your your comments help and help uh, shed some light on some of the ways and solutions that uh, you know, organisations and, and people can manage it. So, um, well, as always, Nick, uh, it's really good to really good to talk. Very grateful to have you on, and, and hopefully we can have you back on in a, a year or two and and see where we stand in the uh, in the current array of challenges that the market faces. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'd I'd love to come back and uh, let's let's see what the next twelve or twenty four months uh, bring us. It's going to be really interesting. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.